joy to be here when Matt asked me if I could come uh, preach in August. I said, yes, I'd love to. I can do any Sunday except August 5th. And then he said, well, actually, I need, I need someone on August 5th. Uh, I said, hey, uh, maybe I could work something out. So it, it really is great to be here. Uh, the passage I want uh, us to look at today is from uh, the book of Colossians. You can turn there. But a couple words on that uh, before we read. Uh, Paul uh, writes to a church in Colossae. And uh, I think Andrew told me you guys are going through uh, uh, Revelations, the letter to the churches of Asia. And Colossae is a very, uh, not, not, not the most important city in Asia, uh, largely forgotten. Um, really, if this letter didn't uh, get passed on to us, we might not have ever heard of it outside of some archaeological works. But it, it's, it's in the Lycus Valley right next to uh, Laodicea, which is one of the churches there. It's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Paul spent many years in Ephesus doing ministry, and he's actually never been to Colossae. Uh, it's his, uh, it's, it's, it's a guy named Epaphras, maybe short for Epaphroditus, who heard, received the gospel from Paul and then brought it to Colossae. And then he planted a church, and then he came back to uh, Paul and sp shared all these great things. And so Paul's just writing... Uh, a letter of encouragement of thanksgiving. So in many ways, I feel like this is my first time here, and I too have heard uh, great things about this church from friends. Actually, I wouldn't be in this denomination if it weren't for a guy, uh, a couple by the name of Brandon and Tanya, who when they were in seminary many years ago was part of this church plant many years ago. He's one of the more Without, he, he, he helped me really uh, find a place in this denomination, get started. So I'm grateful for the history here and the, the many good things you're doing here. So let's, let's take a look at this, uh, this passage. I will read Colossians 1, verse 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's word. Well, uh, as has been mentioned, I am a campus minister at MIT, work with Reform University Fellowship, and uh, beginning in roughly about a month, uh, I enter the, uh, the busy season of chasing students around, uh, asking them to come check out our ministry, come to our Bible studies, our large group. Uh, um, and, you know, chasing students is... Uh, 
uh, it's ch students are not only chased by you know different organization leaders. Students often spend much of their college lives chasing after things. Um, it's a constant, rapid pressure of, of the next thing, the next club, the next meeting, the next event, the next party, the next class, or the next internship. And there, uh, college life is very much, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a bubble, sure, you know, you've got the society on a campus made of 18, 22-year-old people. And uh, it's a very rapid environment. So much happens in four years. In fact, so much happens in, in matters of days. And uh, I, I, I wish I could tell you that this pressure of you know, chasing after that next big thing ends when you're 22, but it doesn't. Uh, oftentimes, um, you know, we're always thinking about the next room to renovate, or the next promotion, or the next vacation. These things are always on our minds. You know, about over a year ago, my uh, wife and I, the, the thing that was on our mind was our next home. Our lease was running out, and we really wanted to buy a home. And uh, through God's uh, good providence, we were able to buy a home. We had lived in Somerville, uh, in Inman Square, really close to MIT for the first three years, but we found a, a single-family home in West Roxbury area um, where I'm able to drive into campus. And, you know, we, we bought this home. It came with the, something we never had in Somerville, which was a yard. And uh, the, when we first moved there, our, our yard... As much as I was like, this is going to be great, we're going to have a yard, our kids can play in here, it was a mess. Like, the grass, or I think their weeds were up to our knees, and so one of the first things I bought literally days after we moved in was a lawnmower. And uh, surely enough, I used that lawnmower. I, I, I mowed it that day, and then a week later, I mowed it again, and then maybe like five days later, I mowed it again, and then it was about mid-July, and I was like, oh, I need to take, I need to mow the lawn again, and I realized the grass had stopped growing. And then a week later, it had still not grown. I was like, what is up with this? And then, fast forward a few months later, it had turned yellow. I was like, what, what kind of house did we buy? Um, so, you know, we, uh, I, prior to living in Boston, I had actually lived in San Diego and Orlando for eight years, so I wasn't really sure, like, what winter season does to stuff like grass. So, uh, you know, we just ignore it throughout winter, uh, as probably is normal. And then uh, around April, we were about to have literally almost 100 people over to our place to have a birthday party for our son. And our grass was completely yellow. And not only that, if you just blow on it with the lightest blow, all this grass would just fly away. And you had these kids come in uh, to our house, and you had just yellow grass all over our house. And, and so beginning about April, May, I've had this 
mission for a better lot. It would be lush, healthy, it would be green. Uh, you know, you got to do all like the aerating and the seeding and the watering and all that stuff. And yeah, we've done all that and it's improved, but we still have a lot of weeds. And the point is, what I've realized is that I don't just want a better lawn. I want a new lawn. There, our lawn, there is so much going on that I don't know. That like the only way for the lawn that I envision is an altogether new lawn. We, we all want something better in our lives. And if we're honest to ourselves, uh, the things that we want is altogether different than the things that we have. We're all driven to have better things, better relationships, better homes and jobs and families, and ultimately a better life. Uh, MIT, um, uh, obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a school very focused on technology and um, you know, we live in 2018 now. Uh, technology has done amazing things uh, over the history of human life. Uh, they've made incredible um, innovations, especially over the last 20, 50, 100 years. And, you know, where the technological world is today is, is not simply we need technology to improve our lives. That you might used to have been the case. That with technology, we can find better cures for diseases. We can find more efficient ways to travel and so forth and so forth. But the, the real powers of the technology world don't want to improve our lives. They want to disrupt it. They want to um, literally ab uh, abolish the old way of doing something and to try a new way. And um, I, I, I would actually suggest that there's something true and good about that. That what we really want is something new. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as, you know, I have, you know, thought about our, our lawn and wanting a, a nice lawn, and as I'm sure you guys have things on your minds that have been on, you know, something you desire. Um, you know, there's something about this generation of college students, let me just talk about them. There's a deep unhappiness, um, not only about their lives, uh, but about society in general. Um, there's a Canadian uh, philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor. He wrote a big book called Secular Age, and um, he says, Secular Age is just this book about how human society over the last 400 years went from a society where most people believed in God to a society where uh, it's normal to not believe in God. And he says that uh, it's this uh, quest not only for a good life, but a good human society, call that human flourishing. He says that the modern quest for human flourishing 
is the main focus of life in an age of unbelief. That as we have removed God from our lives, the focus has gone from where God was once the ultimate good for the majority of citizens. Now human flourishing is the ultimate good in this secular age. And I would, uh, I would also note that what he means by that is um, not only has this become our main uh, obsession for a better life, for a better world, we have also been more uh, depressed and anxious about the thing we want and the thing we don't want. I think the reason Paul writes this letter is I think Paul is after these people he's never met in Colossae. And he says, this is what a good life looks like. A life, we read these things, a life in faith in the Son of God. And I just want to say a couple things about, about this uh, good life that I think Paul is trying to encourage these young believers. And first, the good life is, it's, it's a new life. It's a new life. This is a young church. Paul himself, uh, at this point, you know, Christianity is a new faith. It's a new religious movement. He's probably been a Christian about 20, 30 years, depending on estimates of when this was written, which makes him uh, an elder of the church. And this is a very young church with new believers. And Paul understands, um, Paul understands uh, that not only their Christian life, but his is something altogether new. Uh, he hasn't forgotten uh, the old uh, Paul. If, if, uh, if we could just um, look at this uh, in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if, if this seemingly a trite phrase we probably heard in many different places in Scripture, but Paul understands that uh, before he came to understand Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world, uh, he was a devout religious man. Um, he believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, the common uh, way to talk about uh, the Jewish God as a devout Jew, not only a Jew, but a Pharisee, uh, one who studied the law inside and out, is to refer to this God as God the Father. And so when he says, we always thank God the Father, I think he's going back to his Jewish beliefs that he had a, a zealous belief of this God of Abraham and Isaac. But on the road to Damascus, as you might know this story, he was blinded by the light. And the very person of Jesus, who he thought was an imposter of the true religion, he realized was the true God. And so in seeing 
that Jesus was vindicated as the Messiah, as the Lord, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to have a new vision, a new calling, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and a new life. And so he understands um, that the Christian life is not an improved life or a better life. It's an altogether a new life. Um, we see these even in the greeting words of grace and peace from God our Father. There you see that again. Um, where the typical Jewish greeting was shalom, was peace. Uh, he understands that peace, that wholeness, that right relationship with God, our creator, and men, fellow men, uh, is always preceded by grace, which is God's unconditional goodwill toward men and women, which is decisively expressed in the saving work of Jesus. So he knows that grace and peace, this Greek and Jewish greetings, come together. And it was the Christian greeting to say that we now have peace because Christ has given us that relationship with the Father and with each other. Um, and so we see that the Christian life, it's, it's altogether new. It's something that was given to us. Uh, we had it, we lost it, and in Christ, uh, we have something altogether new. Um, the, 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 Bible, uh, the Bible portrays the good life as coming from our creator. It's a relationship of wholeness with God uh, made possible by the work of his son. And, and I, I would say that to suggest that a good life is something that comes in a relationship with God or is only made possible by the work of God, I would, I would argue that is a very challenging assertion in, in our modern age. Um, in the past, the way to find meaning in life is to go outside yourself and to come back in. What I mean by that is in traditional societies, certainly before the industrial age, uh, enlightenment, uh, in order for you to know what a good life is, you have to go outside yourself, go into society, and learn what kind of life you're supposed to live. And then you're supposed to come back and you order your life based on the things you've learned. You go out and come back in. In our modern society, the way to find true meaning in life is to go within yourself and to ask, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? And then you go outside and you demand that that society affirms the kind of life and person you want to be. It's the other way. The Bible says that the good life is in relationship with God, who is the giver of life. And the gospel the good news is that where we messed up that relationship, God sent his son to live the good life so that we can have a new life with him. 
that we lost before. Do you really believe that this new life that God gives you is the good life? I think we have, uh, we live in Boston, so you know most of our friends are not believers. Um, I think most of them would say, "Yeah, I, I you know, they're great people. Um, uh, I respect their religious beliefs um, and, and the life that they live, uh, but that's their life. I like my life." Um, and I think uh, I don't know. Uh, many of you personally, but I imagine you have people uh, in your life who uh, wonder if you have a better life than theirs. And um, I think what Paul is saying is that, you know, our unbelieving friends don't need to see how awesome the Christian life is. They need to see how new the Christian life is how different it is. Um, Paul, Paul has simply heard from a man named Epaphras there's great things happening in this church, that the people are believing, trusting the gospel. And he writes uh, in response, uh, he'll, he'll get to, in starting verse 9, he'll get to some uh, prayers of intercession, but he begins with this prayer of thanksgiving because he's so thankful that they are living in the new life. And I think one of the practical ways that we can uh, remind ourselves that our lives have been made new by Jesus is by giving thanks in worship and in life. So the good life is, it's, it's a new life. Uh, second, the good life that Paul wants in the Colossians is it's a growing life. Paul's, um, Paul writes to this young church, and he wants them to mature. He wants them to mature as believers. Um, it is very easy to coast uh, we have been accepted into God's family, and someday we'll, we will be with him in eternity. In between, in between that time, God calls us to grow and to mature. Um, and, uh, and this passage says that when the gospel, the word of truth, is understood and obeyed, change happens, maturity happens. Um, N.T. Wright, a Bible scholar, says this about the gospel. He says the gospel for Paul is an announcement, a proclamation whose importance lies in the truth of its contents. It is not primarily an invitation or a technique for changing people's lives. It is a command to be obeyed and a power let loose in the world like Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jews and to the Gentiles. 
uh, it is a the gospel is a command to be obeyed, a power let loose in the world, which cannot be reduced to terms of the persuasiveness or even the conviction of the messenger. Its work is to overthrow falsehood. And I think what he's getting at is um, that the appeal of the gospel is not some sort of persuasiveness or logic, per se, but the appeal of the gospel is the very person and work of Jesus. Um, Jesus uh, is the gospel. Uh, Jesus is, in many ways, like we see this uh, here, um, Of this you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. And indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So it has that kind of personification language. The gospel has come to you. And then it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now it's taking on like these uh, description of a plant. And so it is there is this divine personal force in the gospel that Paul is saying, this is what where change and maturity and Christian growth comes from. Um, I'm not sure if you would believe me if I say this, but MIT is a party school. It's not the biggest party school in Boston, but I think it's the best party school. Um, I might have percent of you believing me in that one. Um, you know, a lot of our students, they measure their spiritual maturity based on whether they go to parties or whether they don't. Um, but attendance doesn't tell me anything about maturity. Uh, let's say uh, a, a student says, yeah, I, I go to parties because uh, I'm mature enough, I can handle it. Um, and because they go and certain people don't go, like they're more mature than them, they look down on the people who don't go, they think they're more better mature Christians. And sadly, some of them begin to conform to the party over time, and they actually tell me that they, they do drink so that they can be a witness. Um, and they think they're mature and actually superior to Christians that don't go to these parties. And so they say, well, I'm mature because I can handle myself at these parties. And other Christian, other students would say, well, I'm mature because I don't go to these parties. Um, and they're better than those that go. Uh, but we don't really know why they didn't go. Maybe they didn't get an invite. <laughs> Maybe they uh, don't want to get caught. Um, I'm not sure uh, attendance tells me anything about maturity. Uh, if we focus so much on our abstinence, we become blind to our indulgence. When we feel good about our abstinence, we ignore the very things we indulge ourselves with. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, a person who makes golf or motorcycle the center of his life, or someone who devotes all his thoughts to clothes or homes, or dog, is being just as intemperate, or we could say indulgent, 
as someone who gets drunk every morning. Of course, it does not show on the outside so easily. Uh, home mania or golf mania do not make you fall down in the middle of the road. But God is not deceived by externals. The problem with both types of students is that neither of them are looking to Jesus for their maturity. Paul's appeal, I, I, I think you, I see the center of this letter to the Colossians in uh, the first few verses of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, I'm not saying that, well, maturity is just thinking about Jesus uh, all the time, 24-7, because uh, that's actually not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say that, you know, seeking the things above are just about Bible studies and church and things like that. He actually uh, spends the rest of his time talking about uh, how to apply the heavenly things in detail, namely towards household relationships in chapter 3 and our relationships with the world, with outsiders in the beginning parts of chapter 4. So he's very clear that this is not a generalization of well, maturity comes in the gospel in Jesus. So all that stuff, all that stuff on the outside doesn't matter. In fact, this is the very uh, problem that the Colossians faced that he talked about in chapter 2. See to it that you are not deceived, uh, he would say. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. Paul understands that God is the giver of life. He created all things and all things that are good. These things are good. My lawn is good. Uh, Jobs are good. Relationships are good. They're just not good gods. Jesus is the one preeminent uh, with God the Father in creation. And um, it is this good news of Jesus through which we grow because he is the one who will renew all things. Um, I want to uh, take a look at, uh, we, we, I read it just a uh, while ago. Um, of this, in verse 5, of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is Bearing fruit and increasing. And so the, the gospel not only grows a person, it grows throughout the whole world. This is the gospel coming to Asia, um, to a city uh, called Classe. And, you know, in Genesis 1, God makes animals. And he tells animals, be fruitful and multiply. And then he creates man and woman. And he tells them, be fruitful and increase in number. Throughout the Old Testament, you have this theme and command to be fruitful and to increase in number. You see this in, uh, to God's call to Abraham and his family in the creation of Israel which highlights the Jewish belief that in the call of Israel, 
God was fulfilling his purposes for the whole world, undoing the sin of Adam by creating for himself a holy people. And so Paul, who knows his Jewish scriptures, is rethinking the Jewish belief in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done. He sees the work of God through his gospel and drawing the whole world into the kingdom of heaven. God is sowing good seeds in the world and preparing to reap a harvest of human lives recreated to reflect his glory. So the gospel does the very thing that we first heard in the book of Genesis. That the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. In Christ there is a new beginning, a new life that we have, the life that uh, with those seeds that are sown produces growth and maturity. The growth is just never personal. It is in the numbers. It is global. Where the gospel's truth is understood and obeyed, it bears fruit. I just want to leave a couple questions uh, for you to reflect on. How do you know the fruit of the word of truth, the gospel, is bearing fruit in your life? How do you know that you're changing by the gospel? Um, maybe when you repent or when you forgive Maybe when you um, show patience with people and wait on God. Um, maybe when behaviors of lust and anger are replaced by gentleness and kindness. How do you know that there's fruit in your life? Based on the word of truth, the gospel. Or what would be the reasons for a lack of spiritual growth? We could literally say gospel fruit. What would be the reasons for the lack of gospel fruit? Perhaps uh, faith and hope coming from a false gospel. Or not understanding God's grace. Or a lack of prayer and thanksgiving. Grace and holiness are mutually inclusive. that as we have been saved by God's grace, we also grow in God's grace. The hope of every Christian is a person, the Redeemer Jesus Christ, and because Christ lives inside us today, because he rules all things for our sakes, and because he is presently putting all his enemies under his feet, we can live with courage and hope. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father, we do give thanks to you for the gospel. 
we do give thanks that once we were dead in our transgressions, you sent your son uh, because you loved us, because you chose us, because you wanted to redeem us. And we thank you that that work through your son uh, has been bearing fruit in churches throughout the world for thousands of years. And we pray for these people, uh, these saints and brothers in um, the same faith, that you would continue to strengthen them, remind them of the good news, that Jesus is their Savior, their Lord. Would you grow them into maturity so that you may receive all glory? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.